This is June 23rd, 2019, and uh, we've just edged past the uh, summer solstice, which means we have uh, another two weeks or so before the days start getting shorter and the nights longer. <clears throat> I'm going to uh, address a topic today that uh, I've been itching to do for quite a few months, actually, um, kind of stockpiling my ammunition uh, <clears throat> with uh, really excellent articles that I consider excellent. And um, it's about uh, the political, the, the, the public discourse having become one where uh, there's so much intolerance with uh, free speech on both sides. Um, I'm aiming to uh, uh, invite our listeners to be open-minded. Um, that's really the, I think, the most important uh, understanding of the word liberal. It means tolerant of views differing from one's own. Broad-minded. Um, I suspect that most of what I say... <clears throat> will be uh, quite um, a lot of agreement. Uh, we have a pretty homogeneous uh, sangha. Um, but uh, I think there may be some things here that we can all learn from. <clears throat> I'll start with an article. I'll be reading, uh, I'll spend more of this Taisho reading Articles than I usually do because they're just so good. Um, I'm going to start off with one by Michelle Goldberg, a columnist for the New York Times. Uh, and this is from over a year ago, February of uh, last year, 2018. <clears throat> and the title of the article is Go Ahead, Criticize Me Too. Hashtag Me Too. During the 2016 presidential campaign, I went to Donald Trump rallies in the Midwest, the South, and on the East Coast. She, by the way, is one of the most critical of uh, our president consistently. It says something about her or her newspaper that she wanted to try to understand. This is what I want to emphasize more than anything is our, our how important it us is uh, how important it is for us as Dharma practitioners to not just lambaste the the other side, but to understand, try to understand. So she went to these rallies all over the United States. At all of them, I'd ask Trump fans what was bothering them about American life. By far, the most common reply was too much political correctness. <clears throat> people kept complaining that they could no longer say what they really thought. I'd ask about, I'd ask what they couldn't say, but they usually wouldn't answer. So, granted, uh, what what one what some of these people might be afraid of saying is what's really um, nasty, racist, and. Uh, so forth. <clears throat> then I'd ask who was stopping them, 
and they inevitably talked about being criticized for their political opinions on social media. Yeah, social media, this is at the heart of this, this whole Teisho. I thought of all those people embittered and baffled to suddenly find themselves subject to a code of speech and manners that they neither understood nor consented to. As I read Katie Soyfi's new essay in Harper, Harper's Magazine, The Other Whisper, this is the title, The Other Whisper Network, How Twitter Feminism is Bad for Women, which faults parts of the Me Too movement for excessive hostility toward men and for accepting all accusations at face value. In it, she also thought about Trump voters, but she compares them to furious online feminists. This is what she said. Twitter, especially, has energized the angry extremes of feminism in the same way it has energized Trump and his supporters. The loudest, angriest, most simplifying voices are elevated and rendered normal or mainstream. Michelle Goldberg continues, Well before it was published, Soyfi's essay provoked outrage on the feminist internet because of reports that she was going to out the anonymous creator of a crowdsourced document about sexual misbehavior by men in media. And then in parentheses, the list's creator, Mariah Donegan, has since gone public, writing that she learned the magazine was planning to identify her when she was contacted by a Harper's fact checker. There was discussion of some writers pulling their pieces from that issue of Harper's because they felt that exposing Donegan could, en- <coughs> could endanger her, though Royfi has claimed she never planned to do that. Some of the pre-publication drama is incorporated into Royfi's final essay. She lists disgusting things that people tweeted about her during the controversy, saying, with this level of thought policing, who in their right mind would try to say anything even mildly provocative or original? She argues that if, in the past, women feared retribution for speaking out about sexual harassment, now those who doubt the Me Too orthodoxy face a new sort of silencing. In the piece, Royfi says that ordinarily outspoken professional women insisted on anonymity before they'd admit to her that they feel conflicted about the current sexual harassment reckoning. She quotes one woman as saying, I think there is more regretted consent than anyone is willing to say out loud. Another says, why didn't I get hit on? What's wrong with me? Uh, this um, this is something that I was first uh, I first heard about when I was in Japan 35 years ago or something, and I was talking with a woman, a very um, impressive uh, woman at the Rinzai Temple where I trained, um, who'd been there for like 30 years or something, and um, I was talking to her about this terrible. Mis- sexual misconduct among Buddhist teachers, uh, Tibetan and Zen and all, and and uh, 
and she was she was saying uh, that one of the one of the the, the, the effects of that of, of that mischief and the, one of the, the forms of dis- discord of of, um, of of trouble is uh, she said yeah so I can imagine she said I could imagine a woman in a sangha who wasn't involved sexually with the teacher saying what's wrong with me why wasn't I hit on and that engendering all kinds of, of uh, troubling uh, thoughts that one doesn't need. It was quite, uh, quite eye-opening to hear that from uh, this uh, very advanced person, very advanced in Zen. Uh, then Michelle Goldberg said her sources, that is Donegan's, no, Royfi, uh, worry about due process and think Donegan's list indefensibly blurred boundaries between low-level boorishness and assault. Some of the sentiments Royfi describes are similar to things I've said in private conversations myself. I understand the hesitation to say them publicly because it's unpleasant to be jeered at on the internet by self-righteous young people. But Royfi, like the Trump rally-goers, makes a category error in conflating criticism, even harsh, ugly criticism, with oppression. The social justice left is often accused of putting feelings over facts, but its critics, in many cases, are just as unwilling to distinguish feeling silenced from actually being silenced. All right, that's the appetizer for this case show. Now we're going to Paul Krugman, another New York Times columnist, uh, and this this title, this is uh, much more recent, March of this year, The Power of Petty Personal Rage. And then the subtitle is Straw Police, Hamburger Paranoia, and the State of the Right. So I'm trying here to give equal equal voice or to both left and right. So Paul Krugman is a Nobel Prize winner in economics and a regular columnist for the, for the Times. And he says, today's column is about plastic straws, hamburgers, and dishwashing detergent. <laughs> also, Captain Marvel. And then he says, no, I haven't lost my mind, or at least I don't think so. But quite a few other people have and their rage-filled pettiness is a more important force in modern America than we like to think. My starting point is a weekend tweet from Representative David Nunes of California, who who headed the House Intelligence Committee until the House changed hands after the midterms. In that role, he basically acted as Donald Trump's stonewaller-in-chief doing everything he could to prevent any real investigation into possible collusion between the Trump campaign and Vladimir Putin. But his tweet wasn't about that. It was about a waitress who, citing the straw police, asked his dining party if they wanted straws. Welcome to socialism in California, Nunes thundered. (laughs) Now, full disclosure, uh, for a while until I felt the need had passed, I carried a tiny 
a bit of an article in my wallet about the um, the effect, the the harmful effect of plastic straws getting into uh, our seas and other uh, waterways and um, getting ingested or uh, impaled in the nostrils of tortoises. And it's becoming a thing. It's becoming a uh, more and more people are waking up to this. And I, I think uh, some states, or at least cities, are now outlawing uh, plastic straws. So when a waitress would bring me at a restaurant, bring me a water that I hadn't asked for with a plastic straw in it, um, I very gently and graciously wanted to let her know that this is something we could uh, try to work together on, not to clutter the uh, oceans with more plastic unnecessarily. And I, I, I say to them, yeah, no, just if you could just ask first before um, bringing the plastic straw. So, but that wasn't to be tolerated by uh, Devin Nunes. Um, Krugman says, if this seems like a weird aberration, he wasn't even denied a straw, just asked if he wanted one, you need to realize that rage explosions over seemingly tr silly things are extremely common on the right. By all accounts, the biggest applause line at the Conservative Political Action Conference eliciting chants of USA, USA, was the claim that Democrats are coming for your hamburgers, just like Stalin. <laughs> and then in, in parentheses, uh, he says they aren't, and for the record, Stalin was a mass murderer, <laughs> but ob objectively pro-burger. <laughs> By the way, this isn't a new phenomenon. I'm sure readers can come up with many examples, but I happen to remember a 2009 blog post by the right-wing activist Eric Erickson that was practically an incitement to violence. And this is the incitement. At what point do the people tell the politicians to go to hell? At what point do they get off the couch, march down to their state legislator's house, pull him outside, and beat him to a bloody pulp? And then he says, and what was the source of his rage? The observation that dishwasher detergent doesn't work quite as well without the phosphates. I thought it was the other way around, but okay. What do these things have in common? All of them involve cases where individual choices impose costs on other people. Plastic straws really are a source of ocean pollution. While nobody is planning to ban beef, Flatulent cows really are an important source of methane, a powerful greenhouse gas. And phosphates contribute to toxic algae blooms. Um, just about the methane from cows, uh, I've read in, from more than one source, the uh, Union of Concerned Scientists and another s source at least, that the the single most important thing you can do as an individual on your own uh, to uh, work to reverse the effects of climate change, climate warming, is to become a vegetarian, adopt a plant-based diet because of uh, all the, the, the livestock industry, uh, methane. But the rage seems to come from the suggestion that these costs imposed on others 
Right? But the rage seems to come from the suggestion that these costs imposed on others mean that white men, it does seem to always be white men, should consider changing their behavior, even a bit, in the public interest. Which brings me to Captain Marvel. For those blissfully unaware of the issue, the latest superhero movie features a female protagonist and the actress who plays her as has expressed some mildly feminist views. So, that's uh, Brie Larson. She mentions later in the article. Well, for a significant number of men, all of this is apparently extremely threatening. It's a good word. That's the, that's the, that's the word. These insecure men who feel threatened by this. Mobs swamped internet sites like RottenTomatoes.com with negative reviews before the movie opened. That is, before they could even see it. YouTube filled up with attack videos and predictions that the film would be a disastrous failure. Marvel Rage recognizably drew on the same pathological pettiness as Straw Rage and Hamburger Rage. As it happens, the movie appears to be a big hit and is receiving favorable audience scores. This shows that the men afflicted with this syndrome are a fairly small minority. <clears throat> yeah, as speaking of the appeal of Trump to so many Americans, uh, I maybe to state what is obvious to, to many people, it's, uh, it's this feeling of being threatened, of, of uh, what one knows, what one has been conditioned to accept, as conventional and normal and right is being threatened. And that's, that's the reaction. And now we're going to flip over to uh, the left side of things. Uh, as everyone who knows me and has heard my Taisho's knows, I'm, I uh, f- consider myself solidly liberal. Um, but as far as for partisan politics, that's less important than our what I feel is our need as Dharma practitioners to be liberal in the old sense, the big broad sense of the world, which is to be tolerant of views differing from one's own. <clears throat> and this one is by Frank Bruni, uh, also New York Times. It's from March of two years ago. But these things, what he reports on here, continues to happen. You read about them all the time. And the the name of this article is The Dangerous Safety of College. And this is, he's alluding to a situation at Middlebury College in Vermont where a, um, a, a, well, I'll let him tell the story. The moral of the recent melee at Middlebury College where students shouted down and chased away a controversial social scientist isn't just about free speech though that's the rubric under which the ugly incident has been tucked. It's about emotional coddling. It's about intellectual impoverishment. Somewhere along the way these young men and women, our future leaders perhaps, got the idea that they should be able to purge their world of perspectives offensive to them. They came to realize that it's morally dignified and politically constructive to scream rather than to reason. 
to hurl slurs in place of arguments. They have been done a terrible disservice, all of us, and we need to reacquaint ourselves with what oh, all of us have, and we need to reacquaint ourselves with what education really means and what colleges do and don't owe their charges. And then regarding that, what colleges owe their charges, physical safety, absolutely. But a smooth, validating passage across the ocean of ideas, no. If anything, colleges owe students turbulence because it's from a contest of perspectives and an assault on presumptions that truth emerges, and with it, true confidence. There's a great... uh, line from uh, by Robert Frost where he says education is the ability to listen to almost anything without losing your temper or your self-confidence <clears throat> what happened at Middlebury was this a group of conservative students invited Charles Murray to speak and administrators rightly consented to it Although his latest writings about class divisions in America have have been perceptive, even prescient, his 1994 book, The Bell Curve, trafficked in race-based theories of intelligence and was broadly, and in my opinion correctly, denounced. The Southern Poverty Law Center labeled him a white nationalist. He arrived on campus wearing that tag to encounter hundreds of protesters intent on registering their disgust. Many jammed the auditorium where he was supposed to be interviewed by, mind you, a liberal professor, and stood with their backs to him. That much was fine, even commendable, but the protest didn't stop there. Chanting that Murray was racist, sexist, anti-gay, Frank Bruni, by the way, is, is gay, says in his columns, The students wouldn't let him talk, and when he and the professor moved their planned interchange to a private room where it could be recorded on camera, protesters disrupted that, too, by pulling fire alarms and banging on windows. A subsequent confrontation between some of them and Murray grew physical enough that the professor with him sought medical treatment for a wrenched neck. Middlebury isn't every school, and only a small fraction of Middlebury students were involved. But we'd be foolish not to treat this as a wake-up call, remember this is now over two years ago, because, of, because it's of a piece with some of the extraordinary demands that students at other campuses have made, and it's the fruit of a dangerous ideological conformity in too much of higher education. Ideological conformity, a dangerous ideological conformity. It put me in mind of important remarks that the commentator Van Jones, a prominent Democrat, made just six days beforehand at the University of Chicago, where he upbraided students for insisting on being swaddled in bubble wrap. This is what he said, I don't want you to be safe ideologically, he told them, I want you to be safe emotionally. I want you to be strong. That's different. I'm not going to pave the jungle for you. Put on some boots and learn how to deal with adversity. Uh, Van Jones uh, is a black 
political commentator uh, who seems to be trying to uh, straddle the uh, liberal conservative uh, divide. You are creating a kind of liberalism that the minute it crosses the street into the real world is not just useless, but obnoxious and dangerous. I want you to be offended every single day on this campus. I want you to be deeply aggrieved and offended and upset and then to learn how to speak back because because that is what we need from you. The liberalism that Jones was bemoaning is really illiberalism inasmuch as it issues repressive rules about what people should be able to say and hear. It's part of what some angry voters in 2016 were reacting to and rebelling against. There it is, what Michelle Goldberg was saying about the Trump voters. And colleges promote it by failing to summon a rich spectrum of voices. Now I'm going to uh, jump over to a Buddhist text on views, the, the danger of views. The, the, the article is called Blinded by Views, Why Viewpoints Are Best Held Gently. And this is by um, an Andrew Olensky, uh, is a... a Executive Director and Senior Scholar at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies in Barry, Massachusetts. Uh, and this is uh, from Tricycle. Uh, 2011. But it's a great thing about solid Buddhist sources is they last millennia. They, don't, they never get out of date. It starts, it starts with the author... Uh, telling this famous story, uh, many of you have heard this, uh, from ancient India about the time that a, a king uh, instructed a servant to round up uh, a gathering of men who had been blind since birth. And then he uh, introduced them to an elephant and so that each could examine it for himself. And he told the the uh, blind men, this is an elephant. Um, and, but to the first blind man, he presented the, held his hand against the head of the elephant, and to the second one, to the ear of the elephant, and, and in turn, to the rest of the blind men, he presented the tusk, trunk, body, foot, backside, tail, and tuft of the tail. At this point, the king approached the blind men and asked each of them, Tell me, sir, what is an elephant like? By the way, this is from a sutra, a Buddhist sutra. Each answered according to his own experience, Okay, saying in turn that the elephant was like a water pot, a winnowing basket, a plowshare, a plow pole, a granary, a pillar, a mortar, a pestle, and a broom. I'll leave it to listeners to match up each of those with a <laughs> parts of the elephant. It's too much for me. So then, then this is the, this much of the tale is generally known. Uh, 
it's of course it's saying that any single thing might have multiple different components and perspectives and that our understanding of any particular issue is going to be limited by the extent of our own direct experience but the original in the in the sutra goes on to say uh, that these nine blind men began quarreling about the nature of the elephant each one saying no the elephant is like this not like that and no the elephant is not like that it's like this eventually they came to blows and began striking one another with their fists the king who had called them all together sat back and watched we are told with great amusement <laughs> okay good for you your highness uh, the uh the entire enterprise had been from the start a form of entertainment for the king i guess maybe we could liken the uh the uh, current media to the king with uh how much they profit from all of the uh, acrimony uh among left and right so um it's natural that many issues are complex people will have different perspectives on them based on their experience their life experience um, what the what the uh, what the author says here what is what is utter, utterly unnecessary the buddha seems to be saying is that such differences need to escalate to stabbing each other with verbal daggers striking one another with fists and worse of course you think of uh, trolling on the social media and all the nastiness that comes from from uh, <coughs> social media at that tipping point when it becomes uh, violent either verbally or otherwise at that point something profoundly unhealthy happens as primordial mechanisms of aggression and defense kick in once this happens the original content of the dispute is lost and the impulses of the self take over the need to establish oneself defend oneself aggrandize oneself and generally attack and injure anything viewed as not in agreement with oneself so could anything be more descriptive of the current climate of of uh, antagonistic um, conversation online especially but not only online i think the the emphasis on the self how the Im- the impulses of the self take over the need to establish oneself assert oneself defend oneself this is the problem from a buddhist perspective uh, the cause of our sorrow is ego delusion and 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 its outgrowth which now we can call otherism seeing differences as the most important thing and and then uh, making war on those we see as other than us it um it's 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 this kind of antagonism um let's acknowledge that it 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 can feel good to be angry we have energy we feel potent we feel strong when we have energy um, 
And that is not always the worst thing. If we, if we feel uh, angry about terrible social injustice and can, it can galvanize us to, to work to, for these things, um, that's not the worst thing. Anger in itself it doesn't need to be uh, toxic. Uh, but, that, but, but this reacting to others' views uh, the reaction comes because of our own held, tightly held views. And I think it's an insecurity. Underneath it all is an insecurity. Because at some level, I think we know that we don't know everything. We, there's so much that we don't know. And so we grasp, like, like we're uh, grasping at straws. We grasp at, at these viewpoints that we hold, conservative or liberal, and then when we run into those who have different views, then we, we can get into this reaction. He goes on, the problem as usual is not with the content, but with the process. So the solution is to be found not in what we believe, but in how we hold those beliefs. I think this is very insightful on his part. The solution to differing views is not some objective standard by means of which those with wrong views can simply learn what is true and change to right views. Such a reference point does not in fact exist in our postmodern world of diversity and the local construction of meaning. Rather, the key to harmony is learning to differ in opinions without engaging the fatal move of saying, only this is true, everything else is wrong. And then he goes on to say, truth is best served by recognizing a viewpoint as only a viewpoint and refraining from taking that extra step of regarding it as true to the exclusion of all other views. In other words, all views, even correct views, are best held gently rather than grasped firmly. Wonderful, wonderful teaching. The point of the story getting back to the elephant, is not just that most things have multiple different perspectives, but the absurdity of being attached to only one viewpoint and the harm that can ensue when one does so. And, and by the way, that is what, that's what we're doing here. To reduce to the simplest terms is we're trying to minimize harm, causing harm to others, first of all, and also to ourselves. He, he, he concludes, so by all means, let's disagree on things, and even if need be, let's do so vociferously. But let's also try not to take it all personally. That's when the fists start flying. In our affirming faith in mind, uh, this is the... the probably the longest chant that we do here on a regular basis. Um, there are these lines that I plucked out. If you would clearly see the truth, discard opinions pro and con. To founder in dislike and like is nothing but the mind's disease. Our choice to choose and to reject prevents our seeing this simple truth. Just let those fond opinions go. But 
it's such an uphill battle because we are immersed in a society that treasures opinions. When this one mind rests undisturbed, then nothing in the world offends. But those who hold to narrow views are fearful and irresolute. Back to the sense of insecurity that such people have underneath their strong opinions. In this true world of emptiness, both self and other are no more. To enter this true empty world, immediately affirm not to. In this not to, all is the same with nothing separate or outside. And then to continue with um, Frank Bruni's uh, 2017 article, he quotes a uh, Columbia University professor, John McWhorter, who says, certain things are not to be discussed. Uh, he teaches linguistics and philosophy, and he's talking about a rigid political correctness that transcends college campuses, but that, it, that he is especially disturbed to see there. Campuses are supposed to be realms of bold inquiry and fearless debate. Reflecting on Middlebury, he told me, anybody whose approach to ideas that they don't like is just to scream bloody murder has been failed in their education. It hasn't taught them, Bruni says, it hasn't taught them that history is messy, society complicated, and truth elusive. He goes on, protests aren't the problem, not in and of themselves. They're vital, and so is work to end racism, sexism, homophobia, and other bigotry. But much of the policing of imperfect language, silencing of dissent, and shaming of dissenters runs counter to that goal, alienating the very onlookers who need illumination. Let me just insert that, that we can accept... Um, suggestions about use of language, even corrections about use of language. Uh, those of us who are older can learn from younger people about uh, ways of speaking that are more inclusive. Uh, definitely. Um, it's, it's, uh, my concern and, and that of these, these authors is when it becomes so extreme that, that you get the feeling that people are just itching to be aggrieved about something, to be offended. Um, it's just um, like lying in wait uh, to pounce on something they perceive as, as uh, not pure enough in language. And then I'm going to read from one more article. This is also by Frank Bruni, and it's from also from this past winter, 2019, because it's so well written. In my in my sense, it's so well written, uh, and it's uh, called Covington and the Pundit Apocalypse. 
Our hasty condemnation of these teenagers reveals the cold truth about hot takes. This is uh, referring to an incident that happened, I guess, in January. This article is dated the 22nd of January. And I saw it myself on CNN where there was some kind of a confrontation between a Native American elder and some young guys, college guys. And it, what I remember most is this, this uh, student um, looking right, right in the face. He's right in the face of this Native American who was beating drums. And to my eye, he looked awfully smug and defiant and even smearing, sneering at this guy. And then, according to this article, I may have been too judgmental. Uh, or misread it. Uh, And he says, There's no shame and much honor in the job of coming to judgments about news events. But we don't have to rush there. That's what too many of us pundits did upon first seeing video footage and hearing accounts of the encounter in Washington last Friday between teenagers from Covington Catholic High School and a Native American elder and veteran playing a drum. There were glimmers of something cruel and even dangerous happening to him. Glimmers were enough for us. Now, of course, we've seen extra footage, heard additional accounts, and moved to a place that should more frequently be our starting point, uncertainty. Tweets have been deleted. Outrage has been put on hold. It won't stay there for long. It's too electric, too profitable, and there will be prompts and genuine cause for it. But will we pause next time to make sure that we understand what we're reacting to and whom we're condemning? Even if that means fewer retweets, will we filter our responses through a mature acknowledgement of what in real time we can and cannot take for granted? only if we're honest about what we've been doing and why we've been doing it. With everything from Twitter followers to television bookings, we're rewarded, that is the the columnists and, and commentators, we're rewarded for fierce conviction, for utter certainty, for emphatically taking sides and staying unconditionally faithful to what we've pushed for and against in the past. We each have our brand, and the narrow and more unyielding it is, the more currency it has and the more loyal our consumers. Instead of bucking the political tribalism in America, we ride it. This is why I admire him as a columnist. He does have this, this liberal sensibility in the broad sense, not, not opposed to conservatism, but open-mindedness and his willingness to uh, acknowledge that he had made mistakes We react to news by trying to fit it into the argument that we routinely make, the grievance that we usually raise, the fury or angst or sorrow that we typically peddle. We have our narrative, and we're on the lookout for comments and developments that back it up. The response to the initial footage of the Covington boys, and in particular to the one who wore a red MAGA cap, Make America Gray Again cap, as he stood before and stared at the drumming veteran, adhered to this dynamic. Was that a smirk on the teenager's face? A sneer? His expression was just indefinite enough 
to become a symbol of entitlement for the pundits who favor that locution, of the white patriarchy for another group, of the wages of Trumpism, of the fraudulence of Catholicism, each person finding something else in that elephant. And while many pundits' outrage was correctly calibrated to what they assumed was going on, it was built on assumption. It was hasty. A crowd was forming and the clock was ticking and nobody wanted to be late to the Inquisition. (laughs) A hot take is prized, hence the well-known phrase for this instant, instant analysis. Nobody talks about a cold take, though that's the temperature of truth. To glance at Twitter as the video of the Covington teenagers went viral over the weekend was to see each pundit one-upping the disdain of the pundits who vented before him or her. It was also to wonder about the degree of preening and performance involved. They weren't merely spreading the word of what had supposedly happened in Washington. They were seizing the opportunity for a fresh and full-throated reminder of their own morality and politics. They were burnishing their brands, and that self-interest was and is the enemy of caution. Again, the self. What's, what's embedded in all this? The self. The attachment to the self and one's own ideas. I'm not going to single out any particular pundits and tweets because there were many and because under different circumstances one of those tweets could easily have come from me. As it happens, I missed this pile on. But I'm sure that if I scrub my Twitter history, I'd find that I behaved in the fashion I've behaved in the fashion that I'm lamenting here. Some of the condemners counter that their essential point remains that entitlement Cruelty and racism persist and even thrive in today's America. That's for sure. But when the evidence cited for that turns out to be inconclusive or wrong, their position is weakened. Their goal isn't served. And finally, some conservatives are gleeful about how this went down. But isn't their vengeful joy its own rushed celebration, its own self-serving simplification of a complex sequence of events, We've realized the error of the first draft, but we'll probably never produce a final, indisputable one. I wish more of us had the humility to concede that. So just a reminder uh, for those of us practicing the Dharma, and especially Zen, where arguably the most important words ever uttered in the history of Zen were, I don't know, that we often don't know and that the the media is 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 presented based on likely some bias or another it's inevitable that some degree there's bias even if it's just faint there has to be an angle uh, a viewpoint uh often and uh <coughs> it's very hard to have a perfectly pure uh, balanced reporting although the best media sources try for that um that old saying, uh, uh, "What when you assume, you make an ass of you and me. It's hard. It's hard because, again, it, we feel so alive when we're reacting, when we're 
being indignant or uh, outraged or something, but um, but to try to, and that's where the meditation comes in to create a space where we're not reacting like that. We're we're stepping back a little bit and being aware that there are different sides and and different viewpoints and and we get into real trouble and generate a lot of uh we just exacerbate the problem in modern America by uh reacting without without understanding without trying to understand the other side well, time is up we'll stop and recite the four vows Okay.